What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground moving the needle in public health and medicine. While LGBTQ Americans share many of the same health concerns as the general population, like affordability and access to care, they also face unique challenges that impact their ability to live healthy and affirm lives. In fact, LGBTQ people face worse health outcomes, including a higher prevalence of anxiety, depression, suicide, substance use disorders, eating disorders, obesity, heart disease, and even some cancers. Understanding these health disparities starts with understanding the history of oppression and discrimination that these communities have faced. But largely, we have failed to connect the dots here. Sexual orientation and gender identity questions are not collected on most health studies or government surveys, making it quite difficult to estimate and understand the health needs. But that's changing. Today, I'm talking to a doctor and researcher who has dedicated his life to serving these communities. Dr. Mitchell Lund is an openly gay physician and researcher at Stanford University in the field of sexual and gender minority populations, also known as SGM. He is the co-director of PrideNet, a participant-powered research network of SGM people that engages communities at all stages of the biomedical research process. He earned his MD from Stanford and his master's in advanced studies degree in clinical research from the University of California, San Francisco. He completed his internal medicine internship and residency training at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a nephrology fellowship at UCSF. Dr. Lund, thank you for being here. I am delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Let's start with a question I think a lot of people have, which is why and how does sexual orientation and gender orientation impact health outcomes? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think this is one that many people, as you pointed out, think about and wonder about. And there's actually several hypotheses about this. But one leading theory is the concept of minority stress. And this model is actually made up of several components that include experiences of stigma and discrimination in society, such that people even become trained or ingrained to start to expect these negative experiences. And this, of course, also can be accompanied with what we sometimes call internalized homophobia or internalized transphobia. So this is actually, you know, the experiences of shame or feeling that you are to blame for your for your own sexual orientation and gender identity. This then results in 
downstream effects uh, that include mental health outcomes like anxiety, depression, can also result in some negative coping behaviors, things like substance abuse. And similarly, this also affects people's presentation to healthcare, that they may not go to the doctor or to the healthcare provider's office because they're afraid of those negative experiences. They're afraid of being stigmatized and discriminated against in the in the healthcare system and those interactions. And so it's not really sexual orientation and gender identity that cause the health problems. It's society's influences on people who are LGBTQ plus, and that results in, uh, you know, in many of the of the health disparities that we see in the community. So on the note of discrimination, the research shows that 55% of lesbian and gay patients uh, and 70% of transgender patients feel that they have received discrimination, uh, substandard care. Tell us more about this stat and what can we tell providers uh, for creating a more welcoming experience? Yeah, and you know, this I think is a is a sobering statistic <laughs> that many uh, that I think um, those of us in LGBTQ health are really, you know, always disappointed to hear and upset to hear, and really I think is a driving force from from for many of us. And this, you know, when I was a medical student um, back in, you know, I started medical school in 2005, and shortly thereafter, me and a group of my colleagues at Stanford started to to look at the you know, what's called medical education, how well doctors are trained to care for LGBTQ plus people. And it was a study that we did towards the end of our medical school time. So in 2009, 2010, um, where we looked at, at how well medical schools in the United States and Canada train future doctors to care for LGBTQ plus patients. And at that time, you know, there were some, you know, kind of sobering statistics on the number of hours that are taught in medical school, something like four hours, um, and that a third of medical schools, you know, had zero time at all devoted to caring for LGBTQ plus people. And so a large component of this, of why lesbian and gay people, as well as transgender and gender expansive folks have received substandard care, discrimination, some are even blamed for their healthcare status in the in the doctor's office, largely as an educational issue. <laughs> Again, doctors and healthcare providers like everybody else are subject to the same influences, uh, whether positive or negative, that society has had over many decades and centuries. And so... Part of this is a lack of medical education, and this that study that we did now 10 or 11 years ago is being repeated right now. So we're hoping that there's an increase in medical education to healthcare providers to care for LGBTQ plus people. But... Um, Again, I think that a lot of this is is that same concept of minority stress, that same concept of negative influences in society. And, you know, I always emphasize that going to the healthcare provider's office is one of the most, um, you know, it's an extra- extraordinarily vulnerable thing that we do, right? And the healthcare provider has, you know, if you're going to a new doctor, You've never met them before. They ask you a whole bunch of rather personal questions about who you are, who you have sex with, what you know, drugs or substances you use, what medications you take, how, what your family life is like, what life at home is like, how your kids are doing, all these things in a very short amount of time. Trust has to be built very quickly. All, all wearing a piece of paper. <laughs> I was just going to say, <laughs> and then they tell you to take your clothes off. We do it, and then we let them touch us. 
Yeah. Right, all in like twenty or thirty minutes, right? So it's, it's so it's, crazy when you say it out loud, right? right? <laughs> you know that doesn't happen uh, in uh, very many other industries, right? And so, and so, yeah. there's a huge amount of trust that has to be built at the beginning. And so if you have this, the, the, the stats that you mentioned, you know, 55% of lesbian or gay people and 70% of transgender people experiencing poor health care, you can imagine that they're never going to come back to the healthcare provider's office, right? Why, why would you go to a place that you're going to be discriminated against or feel stigmatized, right? Like yeah. when you can avoid it, right? And so yeah. this, of course, results in really delayed presentations of things, right? So mm. not getting your age-appropriate cancer screenings, not getting your pap tests, not getting your mammograms, not getting your colonoscopies, not getting your prostate serum antigen, the PSA test for prostate cancer. Yeah. And what happens is we have people showing up, you know, stage three, stage four conditions or high blood pressure that's been uncontrolled for decades, right? Yeah. Things like that. And so there's really, um, and so part of this is involves one, educating providers very early, a, aka medical school, uh, undergrad, <laughs> middle school, <laughs> elementary school about how to be, uh, you know, a, a welcoming and affirming person to LGBTQ yeah. people and eventually a welcoming and affirming provider, right? And that I think will then allow LGBT people to have the healthcare that they deserve. Within the hospital setting or, or clinic setting, how do the EMRs kind of fall short? I imagine they don't allow <laughs> someone to be gender fluid. Um, tell me about where they yeah. fall short and what, what, yeah. what we can do uh, on the EMR side. On the EMR side, yeah. So the EMR side, you know, the EMRs have advanced, of course, many, you know, and I, I uh, say this a little cynically and a little bit, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but I think it's also true is that, you know, EMRs, I think from many providers aspects were meant to be efficient billing machines, right, for hospitals and healthcare systems to collect information that is needed um, to bill insurance in the most optimal way for the best reimbursement, right? And so they were not always met and thought about from a patient-centered <laughs> care perspective from the beginning. So I think that's changing gradually as people are like, we've got the billing down, let's try to make it a little nicer for, for human beings now. And so, you know, a huge percentage of the healthcare system in the United States, I think it's now 60% or maybe even greater, use uh, the, the electronic health record system made by Epic. Um, and there's a couple other large healthcare, uh, you know, e EMR vendors that are, you know, that constitute something like a total of 90 to 95% of the, of the U.S. healthcare system. And many of these vendors have now um, gradually moved to having the ability to collect sexual orientation, to collect gender identity, to collect the sex that somebody was assigned at birth, such as what's marked on their original birth certificate, and to collect the pronouns that they use. Um, there's a variety of the way of ways that those are handled, right? Um, in some EHR systems, um, those are listed at the top that this person has this gender identity and uses these pronouns so that they don't get you know, misgendered or have inappropriate care given to them throughout the course of their of their experience in the healthcare system. And other places that data gets collected and it kind of lives in some hidden screen that you have to, you know, click a thousand times before you can get to and nobody ever checks it, much less do they fill it out, right? And so because sexual orientation and gender identity is so infrequently and um, and really inconsistently collected in electronic health record systems, there is a lack of data in 
you know, the electronic health record systems that yeah. are, exist across this country. And yeah. that really limits our ability, especially, you know, as a, as a LGBTQ health researcher, that limits our ability to understand the health disparities that are affecting the LGBTQ plus population. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, so you mentioned, uh, you know, that this can lead to people being misgendered. What exactly does that mean? And what is the impact of the patient when that happens? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think the important thing to think about when we think of gender identity is that, um, you know, gender identity is, uh, you know, includes many things, right? But I like to talk about the definition of a term that people, I think, are starting to become more familiar with, but, uh, but it is still not known by everybody. And that's the term cisgender. And that's C-I-S gender. And, um, and that's really a term that is used to describe somebody whose gender identity is, you know, kind of what is commonly expected or associated with somebody based on their sex assigned at birth. So let's take me, for example. I was assigned male sex at birth. Uh, you know, when I was born, the OBGYN or pediatrician said, it's a boy, right? That's typically based on external genitalia, right? Whether you have a penis or a vagina uh, when you're born and the doctor makes that decision or the healthcare provider who's, uh, who's uh, delivering and that ends up on a birth certificate. And my current gender identity is a man. I identify as a man. So most people in, this, in our society are cisgender. They identify with a gender identity that's aligned or uh, is most commonly associated with the sex assigned to them at birth. And so we think about cisgender people as being the majority, or we sometimes call them gender majority people. And then everybody else is uh, is a gender minority. And so that, of course, includes people who are transgender. So for example, if I were, I had a gender identity as a woman, but was assigned male sex at birth, I would be considered a transgender woman. Uh, or if I was assigned female sex at birth, and I now identify as a man, I would be a transgender man. But there are people who we now know that there are more than two genders than just man and woman. People are non-binary. Some people are um, gender fluid, as you mentioned. And so it's important for people you know, to, to be respected, right? And so misgendering somebody is, uh, is basically assuming <laughs> that they're a different gender than they are. Right. And the part of that's because they haven't been asked. Right. So one of the things that, that I think people are becoming also more familiar with is pronouns. Right. So I use he and him pronouns. And, you know, if if I was more feminine appearing and that could be the way I look so that my hair, if I was wearing makeup, if I was wearing, you know, wearing uh, more feminine clothes and somebody addressed me by the wrong pronoun that I use, that would be uh, you constitute being misgendered. So for transgender people who come into, you know, our clinic at Stanford, where we have an LGBTQ health practice, we make sure that we refer to people by the name that they use and by their pronouns, regardless of what sex they were assigned at birth. So, and that's really a way to show that, you know, the healthcare system uh, is welcoming and affirming and values people for who they are and what their identities are. It's really a sign of respect. And the impact on patients when when somebody is misgendered is is they're less trusting and less less respectful of of you as a provider of the healthcare system that they're interacting with, et cetera. And it kind of leads to that same, you know, same thing that we talked about earlier of being of being, you know, discriminated against or stigmatized or kind of, you know, put on display as being somebody different um, that may, that turns people away. 
from the healthcare mm-hmm. system and can really have negative effects on their on their on their health broadly and their well-being. Do you think people should always ask for pronouns or only when they don't know? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um you know, we try to normalize pronoun asking for for everybody, you know, and there's ways to do that that I think is a little bit less invasive. You know, I say things like, hello, my name is Mitch or I'm Dr. Lund. Nice to meet you. I use he and him pronouns. Would you mind sharing which pronouns you you use? Right. And some people um you know, they need that example of which pronouns I use to know what I'm asking, because some people don't know, right? But I think if you're a transgender person, somebody who's not cisgender, a gender minority person, um, and you signal that you know what pronouns are and that you're asking because you want to be respectful of that person, that goes a long way, right? Mm -hmm. That signals that you have kind of a baseline level of competency that um, that is quite... Uh, quite good, (laughs) you know, and is at least, you know, you're, you know what the terms are, you can talk about it, and, um, and, uh, and that you're committed to using those pronouns and what name they use, etc. throughout the throughout the interactions. And we do that not just in healthcare settings, but we do that also in meetings, right in like research meetings or business meetings or those sorts of things. So, um, you know, I think it's more common for people to see pronouns now on the zoom name, right in our COVID world, where people add yeah. it, uh, you know, uh, on their the little your name that shows in the corner of the Zoom window, or um, on Slack, or what, Slack, it. yeah, Slack, mm-hmm. Teams, whatever you use, right? It's in all those yeah. all those places, and and the companies are now actually, you know, Zoom has added that feature where you can select your pronouns and they add it for you. <laughs> so uh, you know, as a defined field oh, in their I didn't software, know that. yeah, it's right, yeah. So right. I think it's just showing the advancement of society yeah. to, to acknowledging that these are important issues. Um, in the healthcare setting and also outside of the healthcare setting. Sure, because we can impact our colleagues and friends regardless. So absolutely, if, if absolutely. We, we can actually help their health outcomes by <laughs> exactly. doing that. You may have noticed, you know, like I included in my email signature and the emails that we were exchanging mm-hmm. prior to this, right? It's there. And it's, you know, a, yeah. lot of, a lot of, it's so easy. It's such, so easy to do. Cause like, when, how often do I edit my email signature? Not very yeah. often, right? You know, so you kind of mm-hmm. set it and forget it, right? And, and going in there once and adding your pronouns um, is just a way to signal to your friends, to your family, to your colleagues that you're somebody who, um, you know, acknowledges that people may use different pronouns and especially by email, um, you know, it's, you're not going to know, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, unless you ask them. And so it's kind of a nice way to say, uh, oh, you know, when I'm talking about Mitch, I should use he and him pronouns when talking about him, Right. We'll be right back after the break. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. 
you should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So you mentioned um, Stanford's LGBTQ practice, which um, is is so interesting. Are, how many of these sort of practices are there nationwide? And should we spend more time uh, making more clinics specifically for these communities, or sure. should we spend more time training existing practices? <laughs> Maybe there's some like sort of accreditation, like we are pride friendly or something. Right, right. Um, yeah. so what are your thoughts there? Yeah, yeah. So uh, boy, do I wish that there were more of them. And boy, do I wish that everybody, you know, was was trained and, you know, had this called cultural competency and cultural humility when interacting with LGBTQ plus people. So I think the answer is both yes and everything else together. Um, You know, we do have, it is much, you know, it is now um, quite, it's becoming more and more common for, um, for places to have LGBTQ affirming practices. And so we think of that, especially in academic medicine, this is a kind of a up and coming uh, thing. So, you know, there are LGBTQ health programs at the University of Pennsylvania, at Penn, at Stanford, at uh, University of Kentucky, and, 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 and many other places across the, uh, you know, University of California, San Francisco, and other places. And so um, it's not just in the big cities, and it's not just in the coast either. And then, of course, there have always been for decades, um, and this really was born out of the height of the HIV epidemic, federally qualified health centers and community health centers that serve LGBTQ plus people. They initially spun up to help treat patients living with HIV, um, and their missions have diversified. And so these are uh, centers like Fenway Health in Boston, Callan Lord Community Health Center in, uh, in New York, Whitman Walker Health in Washington, D.C., Chase Brixton in, uh, in Baltimore, Howard Brown in Chicago, the Los Angeles LGBT Center, and others. And so these are, um, you know, healthcare systems that largely uh, exist in larger cities, but have a significant focus on serving LGBTQ plus people. So there are some places like that and then academic medical centers. But then the question is, what about everybody else, right? The folks, you know, I'm from Bismarck, North Dakota. Originally, there is not a large academic medical center in Bismarck. People get their health care from typically one of two healthcare systems that exist in the city, right? And so what about training all of those providers, right? Sure. And so... 
I think you're exactly right that there needs to be some training, some accreditation, et cetera, um, for providers. For healthcare systems, there is the Human Rights Campaign, uh, HRC. People may be familiar with them. They're the famous yellow equal sign bumper stickers that people see around on a blue background. Their foundation runs a, a, a program called the Healthcare Equality Index. And the Healthcare Equality Index every year lists healthcare systems and basically ranks them on their LGBTQ competency and friendliness. And there's a whole set of criteria, including non-discrimination policies, trainings for staff, et cetera. Um, and uh, healthcare systems can become leaders and get the designation of a leader um, by meeting you know, a certain number of these criteria. And so there are resources for people to, um, you know, to find out if their local healthcare system, you know, is LGBTQ friendly. In sure. addition, there's an organization um, called GLAMA, G-L-M-A, um, which is formerly known as the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, but now it just goes by the fabulous name of GLAMA. And they have a healthcare provider directory. So they're a resource for people to search by zip code to find providers that are LGBTQ plus friendly. And that's kind of an opt-in for providers. They list themselves, uh -huh. they list themselves there. Um, and that's, that's one option. And then I think, you know, we would be remiss to, uh, especially in a conversation with you, to not talk about some of the digital options for, um, especially in the COVID era, uh, it's, you know, spun off a huge amount of telehealth and, tele and telemedicine. And so there are now a variety of companies you know, and Rock Health uh, did a blog on this a little bit ago as well of the LGBTQ plus health digital space, including the provision of healthcare. Yeah. So there are several organizations now that provide, um, you know, sexually transmitted infection testing, inclu uh, include uh, PrEP, so pre-exposure prophylaxis to HIV, a medicine to help prevent HIV, as well as gender affirming hormone therapy. So actually, you know, for folks who are transitioning their gender and would and want to have medical transition that is you know taking testosterone for transgender men taking estrogen for transgender women um, to be able to provide that in a in a telehealth based way and so you can imagine for folks that live um, not where there's affirming providers or live in very rural areas where they need That's to drive hour yeah exactly <laughs> need to need to drive hours uh, to find a gender affirming provider or somebody who would be able to prescribe uh, that type of therapy, um, these are really game changers for folks because it's yeah. a way of changing access, you know, uh, when that you can do from the comfort of your home without the fear of that stigma and discrimination that we talked about earlier in the healthcare setting, right? Is the yeah. front desk person going to misgender you? Is the yeah. valet parker going to misgender you? Is the medical assistant or the nurse going to, you know, make some snide comment about you? Instead, you do it from your computer or your smartphone from your couch. Right. You know, with a company um, that focuses on that type of, uh, of therapy with the with the specific population um, makes it a lot easier and safer for a, a lot, lot of easier folks. to hang out, too. It's easier exactly. to just... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's one of the great things about yeah. the digital space. Right. Is if you're being stigmatized or discriminated against. Yeah. Leave. Right. You yeah. can just quit. Close the window. <laughs> right. You know, close the app. Right. Uh, the locus, the locus of control is with the patient. Right. Yeah. Rather than with the provider or the healthcare system, um, yeah. you know, the power dynamic is a little more even in a telehealth setting than the way it is in a in a typical brick and mortar clinic. Yeah. You know? So you mentioned PrEP earlier. Tell us about the history of PrEP and 
how it's just been a game changer for <laughs> yeah. with, with its public health impact. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So PrEP um, it stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, and that's a fancy way of saying it's a medication that you take prior to any exposure in order to prevent HIV infection. Um, HIV, I think everybody knows, has been, uh, was, and continues to be, you know, a large problem in, uh, in society, not just for the LGBT community, but of course, um, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, that was, um, you know, a huge component of the population that was, was affected. And PrEP, you know, has been in the works and for, for now several, probably approaching two decades, which was, you know, the medications used to treat HIV are now, have been multitude, different classes, many different drugs in each class. And there's, you know, a gajillion of them. And what people started to realize was, could we take maybe some of these HIV medications on a daily basis to help prevent HIV infection, uh, given the biology of and the you know the viral replication processes that HIV goes through, how it actually infects people. And the short answer is yes, you can. And we now know, um, you know, there are two two medicate two oral medications that are both uh, FDA approved for the prevention of HIV. Um, these are medications that, from an FDA indication, are to take every day, and when taken every day, um, are highly highly effective like greater than 99% effective at preventing HIV. But it is not easy to take something every single day. Correct. Yeah. So that's the whole thing. That is also, <laughs> you have you have, you have have hit the nail on the head for, for the challenges, which is that, um, yeah. that, that adherence, as we call it, to medication, do you take it every day, is the problem, right? Medications don't work if you don't take them, it turns out. Um, and so just having them in your, in your medicine cabinet doesn't, doesn't necessarily work. Doesn't do um, the trick, no. Nope. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, you know, but we do even show pretty high rates of efficacy of, you know, that it works well to prevent HIV taking, um, you know, four tablets out of uh, per week. So four out of seven days. And of course, as you hit five and six and seven, those numbers just increase. So those are really are really great, um, you know, great, great medications that I think are really helping to change, um, to change the landscape. On December 20th, there was um, a new medication just approved by the FDA. Um, and this is actually a long acting injectable medication that was shown to be, you know, as efficacious as the oral medications. Um, and it's basically a shot in your butt every two months. Amazing. And so yeah. for folks who have difficulty taking medications every day, uh, you know, with the adherence of an oral medication, um, yeah. that may be a better option for yeah. folks, right? It's, right. It's the so. depot of prep. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. It's the depot. Yeah. The the you know the birth control shot of of I prep. Think right? Every four months, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. It's every two months. It's every two That's months. Is what the depot? Yeah. Yeah. The depot okay. for prep will be every two months. Yeah. So it's um. You know, so I think these are, you know, and I think, you know, a lot of people have made the analogy between PrEP and birth control, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the pill that you take every day to prevent pregnancy or the pill that you take every day to, to prevent yeah. HIV, right? You know, and of course, now these other, these other opt, these other versions, right, yeah. of uh, with the other formulations. You know, the challenge is um, 
you know, for folks who are taking medications every day, they might be taking a pill for something else every day. It's easy for folks to add that into their regimen, right? To add another pill, right? Because they just do it. It's all they already they're already in the routine, right? Of course, the young the group that is always at risk for HIV the most is the younger folks, right? Kind of yeah. the eight, eighteen to twenty four age range. And most 18 to 24 year olds don't take medicine every day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And so adding a daily pill can be very difficult. And so, you know, they think, oh, I have to buy a pill box, you know, a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday (laughs) thing. And I'm like, it's a way to remember if you've taken it. Right. Because if it's still there, you haven't taken it. Right. You know, because we also run that that issue. Right. People are like, well, I think I took it. Should I take another dose? Just, you know, right. You know, and that. So there's there's all those all those issues that are there. But of course, the largest challenge is, you know, prep still um, does not have the uptake that we hope it would. Right you know, there's continual education that we do in primary care throughout the Stanford system and that is happening across the country um, to really yeah. um, to really make this, you know, better what, for folks. What's, what's the cost? Yeah, so PrEP, um, so one of the medications is now generic. Uh, and this, and PrEP also has what's called an A rating from the United States Preventive Services Task Force. So this is the highest rating that it should be um, that should be given, you know, to to preventive measures. That's the same thing, like getting your colonoscopy right for colon cancer has an A rating. Yeah. So so prep um, has the strongest evidence for it. And so most insurance companies, and it varies a little bit state by state uh, for commercial insurance, and then of course you know or employer based insurance, but then and then state provided programs, Medicare, Medicaid, etc. I have um, never encountered an insurance company that doesn't cover uh, that doesn't cover prep for the generic form. Um, there, one of the medications is newer, um, which sometimes is covered by some insurances, and sometimes people have to quote unquote um, fail the generic version first, have some side effects or other things. Um, but the list price, if you were to buy the brand name tablets without insurance are incredibly expensive, something like $1,600 to $1,700 a month. Wow. So yeah, very yeah. expensive. And the shot has a list price yeah. of, of double that, basically yeah. $3,400, $3,300 a month because they're making it basically equivalent to two months of tablets, right? Yeah. So incredibly expensive, um, but many, you know, the pharmaceutical companies that make them uh, have a variety of... Uh, assistance programs for people who, uh, for some reason, are having super high copays or other things. Um, so there's a, there, the whole process is that it's, it's very easy for people to get with little to no out-of-pocket costs, regardless of your insurance yeah. coverage now, is, is the short, is, is the short yeah. answer. <laughs> so. is it, is it me- does Medicaid cover it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So there's lots of, um, you know, the, yeah. the, the goal here is to decrease the barriers to accessing it, yeah. right? You know, so, but, um, but yeah, that was, well, it wasn't always that way. So let's switch gears for a second sure. and talk about LGBTQ youth and mm-hmm. their, um, their human rights as sure. it comes to, uh, being able to access things like STI testing, uh-huh. transitioning, PrEP, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but they might not legally be able to do that because they're minors. Um, what What is the current state of things and what needs to be done to ensure that our youth are protected? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, thankfully, all 50 states 
allow minors, and that age varies a little bit in the state. So some of them it's 12 years and older, some of them it's 14 years and older, some of them it's anybody regardless of their age, to give consent for, um, for STD diagnosis, for testing, without parental consent. So um, granted, they have to get to a place that will offer that to them, right? You know, so that's, I think, oftentimes the larger issue. But the laws, you know, do allow, you know, minors to consent to SDI services. And it's about 11 states that have this age requirement of either 12 or or 14 years old. Um, uh, HIV testing, interestingly, is a whole other story. <laughs> so they separate sexually transmitted infections out from, from HIV. And HIV testing, oftentimes, sometimes, in some states it's bundled with the STI testing and is included in that. In other states, it requires a separate consent, and that may be um, at a different age or may not be allowed without parental consent at in some states. So it's kind of a hodgepodge of, of, um, of rules. And there's a great uh, CDC webpage that kind of has a chart, <laughs> a table of, the, of what's allowed for minors at which states. And then when you think about HIV prophylaxis, so both PrEP like we just talked about, or there's another form of HIV prophylaxis called PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis. So this is after you've had a potentially um, you know, encounter with, with somebody whose HIV status is unknown or who is HIV positive and has a detectable viral load, that um, is really only allowed in three states without parental um, consent. So you can kind of see it's like a funnel of decreasing access when you go from STI testing to HIV testing and then further down to HIV treatment and even narrower for HIV prevention or prophylaxis. And so you can imagine that, um, you know, for in many cases, LGBT youth may not live in a supportive family environment, right? Even whether they're LGBT or not, um, you know, many kids don't want to necessarily talk to their parents or guardians about their risk for sexually transmitted infections, right? That might be um, something that they're not talking about with yeah. their, with their, and they might not even be talking about it with their, with their pediatrician or their primary care provider because parents might be in the room sometimes during those visits, or they might just not feel comfortable doing that, right? And so, you know, there are many, and people who live in cities have the ability to go to, you know, oftentimes STI clinics, right, or that are more focused on on sexually transmitted infection testing. But again, if you live in a more medium-sized area or in a suburban area or in a rural area, you don't have that opportunity. And some of that can now, again, be done by um, by telemedicine and mailing at-home kits or those sorts of things um, to be done. But again, there's all the logistics of maintaining privacy and maintaining, uh, you know, privacy of that of that minor yeah. from from I mean, their from, from home, their parents, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. When the box when the box shows up, you know, yeah. you're checking, you know, you're waiting for the mail to come every day, right? You know, yeah. and trying to trying to yeah. So it there's it's it's challenging. Right? I'm not gonna you know it's a challenging situation, right? So, I mean, the good news I think you know is that people have realized that STI testing and more and eventually HIV testing is important for people regardless of their age to be able to be done without 
without yeah. another person granting their approval for that, right? So, okay. But what about gender affirming treatment? Because that is, yeah, that's different. <laughs> that's totally different, right? So, and that I think is a much narrower, you know, group of, you know, and at, at Stanford Children's Hospital, um, we do have a pediatric and adolescent gender clinic. Um, and that typically does involve, um, you know, parental involvement, um, you know, especially when we get to things like hormone therapy or, or, or puberty blocking agents, right? So that they don't go through their, that first puberty and instead go through a puberty that's more aligned with their, with their gender identity. And so those are, you know, are less accessible without parental involvement. And it typically is because they are part of oftentimes covered by, by their parents or guardians' health insurance, right? You know, and so, um, you know, there are some public public systems that, are, you know, are working to to make sure that this is available. So, you know, county health systems have, uh, you know, in many places now have gender affirming care and LGBTQ plus uh, health care. Um, and sometimes those services can be accessed without insurance and then can be accessed, you know, in a way that is not not needing the the parent or guardian's guardian's approval, you know, but we do know that gender affirming care especially is is life-saving for folks, right? It lowers depression, anxiety, and most importantly, you know, we know that it lowers um, those mental health outcomes that result in suicide and suicide attempts. And so gender affirming care is one of, um, you know, for people to be trained on and to do um, and can take comfort in that they are, you know, literally saving people's lives by, by, by providing that care. Yeah. And there are now uh, companies like folks that yes. are offering it digitally because as we know, there aren't enough clinics across the country. Absolutely. Uh, that right. That expertise, so. Yeah. And so that, that telemedicine based approach, again, comfort to do it from your couch, <laughs> right. Or comfort to do it while you're on a walk away from your parents, right, you know, or away, you know, out of there. And they've done, they found, you know, I think folks actually doesn't take insurance and they just have a really rather affordable, you know, relatively speaking model um, that allows people to, to, to access that that way. And I think that there are also, and there are several other companies aside from folks as well that are, that are offering this that have, uh, you know, some financial assistance programs also out there, right? You know, where they'll cover the cost for people who are, who are unable to, to afford um, their, I think, monthly fees that they're, that they're charging. So there's really lots of ways, you know, and that's, again, a much safer area where the locus of control is with the, is with the, the patient and not with the healthcare system. So tell us about the Pride study that you lead. So the Pride study is an online uh, longitudinal health study for LGBT adults. So you do have to be 18 or older. I co-direct this study uh, with my close and dear friend and colleague, Dr. Juno Obadan Maliver, who's an obstetrician and gynecologist also at Stanford. We met in med school at Stanford in 2005. So we've been working together for the past 16 years or so um, doing LGBTQ plus related uh, health research. And the PRIDE study um, really has an overarching goal to look at how being a sexual or gender minority or being LGBTQ plus uh, person impacts your physical, mental, and social health. And we do 
this in via a community engaged approach. And so many healthcare studies that people have either heard about or participated in are oftentimes conceived either by pharmaceutical companies or conceived by professors, you know, like me and academics. And they don't take the community input and the community experiences necessarily into their design and approach. And so um, instead, who am I to know what an experience is like for an African-American transgender person living in rural Arkansas, right? Who am I to know what life is like as a cisgender lesbian woman living in Minneapolis, Minnesota? (laughs) And so instead, we've taken an approach where we engage participants uh, and LGBTQ plus people at every stage of the research process. And this includes from question design and study design all the way to recruitment, obviously participating in the research, in the analysis and interpretation, and importantly, how those results get disseminated back to communities. Um, Many research... What's that? This is so interesting. So they're not just your subjects. No, 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 no. They're your research partners. Exactly, exactly. This is a partnership-based model, and we move it more from a transactional approach, you know, do this study for me, do this thing for me, to a transformational approach. How can we work on this together to change to change healthcare or change aspects. And, um, you know, many research studies, uh, as we like to say, live and die in medical journals. They never reach the, the populations, uh, one, who participated in the study, <laughs> and two, the populations that we hope that will benefit from the, from the results, right? And so our process is before, the second we have a research paper published, we have a community-friendly summary of findings already available for people to read. So this, you know, if you've ever looked at a scientific paper from a medical journal, oftentimes you have to pay for it, oftentimes in an insane amount, like $50, and you get like 30 days of access or something like that. And then you get it, and it's written in the language that doctors and scientists speak, which may not be the language that you speak or understand. And so we create, a, you know, a more community-friendly version of that. We send that, that f- the first people who learn about our study results are our study participants. They're not Stanford. They're not our funders. They're not our colleagues in LGBT health research. The f- literally the first people that get an announcement are our participants. Yeah. And are these observational studies? Yes. Yeah. So right now, right now, the Pride study is observational. So we're, you know, we have over 23,000 adults from across the country uh, that have enrolled in the Pride study. They participate primarily via our annual questionnaire, which is rather lengthy. It takes about 45 minutes to an hour to complete. Um, You don't have to do it all at one time. You can do, you know, start and stop at your convenience. And that really gives us, um, asks a lot of questions, some of them rather sensitive about people's lives, both physical, mental, and social health. And then additionally, we uh, throughout the course of the year, we release other studies that are shorter in length, anywhere from usually 10 to 20 minutes, that focus more in-depth on a particular topic. So we released one yesterday about people's experiences with mental health treatment and counseling, for example. We're having ones that will probably be released next week 
or if at the very latest the week after that, there'll be a new survey to discuss COVID. We've launched previous ones about COVID, but getting the current impact and people's, you know, vaccination interests and beliefs and many other aspects of, of COVID. And another one about how COVID has impacted family building for LGBT oh. people. Has it influenced yeah. whether or not you were going to go through you know, surrogacy or IVF or um, sperm donation or egg donation, et cetera, right? You know, had to, has it sure. changed, delayed your plans, changed your plans, affected your plans in some way? Um, and, you know, how has also COVID for people who are pregnant, how has that, you know, mm. influenced their prenatal care, their anxiety, all these other things that, of course, are going on, you know, fears of getting uh, COVID themselves, fear of COVID harming their babies, all these all these options, yeah. you know, these things that are, of course, you are probably, you've probably heard over the yeah. past, over the past oh, yeah. years, you know, so. I'm um, excited to see that study. That's yeah. interesting. So, so we, so this is kind of the way the Pride study works. We have this big annual questionnaire that, you know, is once a year, releases every June or so is open. We try to let, what, kind of do a Pride Month release and is open for, you know, 11 to 11 and a half months or so. And then these annual questionnaires that come, you know, at, at various times that are shorter. I'm sure these, and these uh, in-depth questionnaires that are shorter that are on particular uh, topics. And then we are, um, you know, starting, um, you know, uh, surveys as one data type. We're now in the process of kind of expanding our interests uh, to look at some other data types. So we have a study uh, launching pretty soon where we'll actually be collecting uh, blood specimens from uh, from 600 people as a start. Uh, people can go to uh, their local Quest Diagnostics. These are freestanding labs that exist in, uh, all across the country um, to get uh, a couple tubes of blood drawn, which will be actually sent to the to the Stanford Biobank for some for some different studies that we have uh, planned there. So we're looking to move into various data types. You know, not just surveys, but also uh, biospecimens and other things in the future. Yeah. Well, if anyone listening wants to learn more about Dr. Lund's work and participate, you could visit pridestudy.org or follow them on Twitter at The Pride Study. Dr. Lund, thank you so much for this conversation today. I learned quite a bit and have um, some new perspectives. So I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight to, to speak with you today. And I hope that this was uh, educational for your listeners and happy to, uh, to have them reach out to me or to any of the Pride Study folks if they have any questions or other things that they would like more information about. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seely. Our intern is Antonella Sterniolo. Our host is Hallie Tecco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seely. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. 
Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.